we buy our systems from Microsoft or Linux or whoever, and and we we put them in with their default settings and everything else. And so the the number of options we've got, um, you know, to to have control over the, the principle of least privilege, separation of duties, you know, secure defaults, auditability, unexposed APIs, that kind of thing, is is limited because we are we are using more and more off the shelf, out of the box solutions. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, President and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Adrian Wright, Managing Director at OneGRC.com, Board VP of Research at ISSA UK, former CISO at Thomson Reuters. On top of all that, Adrian is a prolific uh, contributor on LinkedIn, where he goes by the handle of The Cynical CISO. I have followed Adrian's comments and posts for years now, and I figured his being on the show was long overdue. So, Adrian, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Great to see you at last, Alan. We've been planning this for some time, so it's uh, it's good to actually put it together. I love it. I love it. So we're talking about four different topics today. Um, these are kind of topics we we bandied back and forth a bit, and uh, it's kind of a, a a broad overview. They all kind of really hammer on the same theme, though. Uh, the first one is about cybersecurity being consigned to the twilight zone in many organizations. Uh, the second one is about responsibility, accountability, ownership, authority, but specifically sort of tied to inventory and the means of control. Uh, the third one is a reference to a Fry and Laurie sketch, which if you have not seen, you have to see. Uh, are we the baddies? And then finally, we have largely forgotten security principles. This kind of all ties together to talk to what we should be doing that we aren't doing in cybersecurity. So uh, I say we just dive in and get into it. So let's talk about this cybersecurity being consigned to the twilight zone uh, paradigm. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you walk me through sort of your take on that one? Well, this stems from a whole bunch of discussions I've been having with people on LinkedIn and other forums, which really crystallize what I've thought for many years is that a lot of organizations see cybersecurity as a necessary evil. Um, but it can't be both. It can't be both necessary to the business um, or not. So in many cases, the role is kept in a kind of twilight zone between existing to fill, fulfill a, um, a compliance checkbox requirement and having full authority to act to improve the organization's security. Um, so I think this has been the case for as long as I can remember. And a lot of organizations have this mindset within the culture. Um, and it's debatable as to whether you'll be able to change that mindset. But, you know, I've got some, some ideas about if you find yourself in this situation where, you know, you, you're function is there for it to meet a compliance requirement but you don't necessarily have the authority and the tools to act you can you can potentially work your way up the system and get some influence and try and change all of that i love that so so before we um tackle the how do you actually work your way up and do that um what what do we think I guess there's two kinds of organizations. There's the organization where the twilight zone phenomenon is going on. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, you're, you're here to check a box. You're here to be regulatory. Um, you're sort of marginalized otherwise. Uh, oh, there's that annoying guy wanting me to stop what I'm doing, spend money from my department, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and then there's the organizations maybe where that's not uh, so much the case. Is it required that the organization be a security-ready organization before we can do that, work your way up and, and, and get your way in and start to affect positive change? Is it really dependent on the organization, or are we going to have to use these skills no matter what? Uh, and will they be successful if so? Yeah, it's, um, it depends. It's largely down to whether the organization is regulated heavily regulated. So if, if you're in banking or pharmaceuticals, um, typically you have an easier time of persuading senior management to resource and act. But if you're in a less regulated uh, sector, then you kind of have to fight for that authority and to, uh, and to, and to get that influence at the top level. Uh, and it's, it's not such an easy task. So it's, it's largely the kind of DNA is down to what sector you're in. Um, and of course, as we know with finance and banking and stuff, if, if you don't meet the regulatory requirements and you don't have things in place, then you're going to lose your license. And that's a big deal. Uh, same, same with pharmaceuticals and the FDA stuff. Um, but for other sectors, um, you know, it, it's, it's a harder, harder job and you have to work harder to get that influence and to make those changes and to get the authority to act. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me, you know, we, we complain about this as CISOs. I think it's a very common refrain, right? Um, we're responsible and yet don't have the authority, right? Uh, if you look at the standard RACI chart, responsible, accountable, consulted and informed. And so we talk about how we are accountable and responsible as CISOs and yet ultimately only really have consultative power. This is probably the common refrain. But, but I want to step away from that for a moment from the CISO perspective because honestly – Anybody that's ever done project management or program management has had this same refrain, right? Project management and program management, you're running around getting a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different departments trying to work in harmony towards a common goal that you're ultimately responsible for whether you hit schedule or not. Um, and, and yet you don't have that actual authority to um, get them to do whatever needs to be done. You're accountable. You're responsible but you don't have the authority. This is a common refrain in project management. It always has been. And so for CISOs, I don't think it's necessarily so unique, right? I think that what we get into is um, having to master certain skills. And this is something you hinted at, that you have to work your way up, work your way in. Um, I think most project managers will tell you that soft skills and people skills are number one. Um, beg, borrow, steal, influence, come to somebody and say, hey, these other guys are running behind. Can you pretty please speed up? And, you know, all, all these types of trades and barter deals to make sure that the project hits completion on time. Uh, is it really the same for the CISOs? What are the skill sets for the CISOs? Well, I think, yeah, I think you encapsulated there that basically you've got to go up to come down. So you have to influence upward and, and to grab that authority that's given to you and, and then bring that authority down to make people act. And if you if you don't do that, you can't get that, then it's going to be very difficult for you to motivate people whose core job is not cybersecurity to do stuff for cybersecurity. Um, so you need the authority and however you get it. And there's a lot of discussion on this. I mean, there's the, the perennial discussion about reporting lines. Should the CISO report to the CIO and the CTO and all that kind of stuff? And that's, that's, that's kind of done to death. Um, but my view on that is, you know, report to, to whoever gets the job done, to whoever gives you the authority, who has your back, 
who will get you the resourcing and, uh, you know, make sure you don't get fired. And it, once, you've, once you've grabbed that authority, you can then come down with a big hammer and say, this, you know, this has come from the top. So you, you can't underplay that. It, seniority is, uh, is an important factor. And it doesn't necessarily mean having the CISO on the board. Um, you, can, uh, you can get proxy authority from the right level to get the job done. Another thing I've been thinking about is, um, you know, what are the characteristics you look for in an organization to, to recognize whether they have a good, um, a good security-ready structure or DNA? Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, looking back and doing some research on all of this, I think the, the two factors that you look for in a, in a security-friendly or security-ready organization where you don't have to threaten people to get stuff done are maturity and integrity, where maturity is nothing to do with how long you've been in business, but how consistently and thoroughly they manage things. And integrity as the willingness to see and engage and deal with the unsexy, non-revenue-generating aspects of the organization, of the operation, like security, um, just as well as they manage the kind of revenue-generating, exciting bits. And I think those two things, maturity and integrity, uh, are the things that you would look for in an organization, maybe before you join, take up the, take up the role. If you, if, you can't, if you can't see those, then you've got to be able to see a path to getting the authority you need to act. Yeah. I, I spoke with a woman just a couple of weeks ago who runs an entire practice. Her entire consulting practice is basically communication skills for CISOs. Um, and it's both inbound and outbound. To your point, one of her biggest uh, points she made early on in our conversation was, you know, we were talking about why is there high CISO turnover? And she was she was basically attributing a lot of it to the CISOs, um, you know, to the CISOs themselves, the high turnover being a lack of their capability. They hit a wall, they get frustrated, they move on, rinse and repeat, never actually get the traction they need. She was she was putting a lot of that on the CISO themselves. And I pointed out, I said, what about those companies where, and this is to your point, the twilight zone, right? What about those companies where you come in as the CISO and find out that what you've signed up for is a checkbox role? And her immediate response was, in the realm of communication, you should be finding this stuff out. There are key questions you can be asking during the interview process. There are key things you can be looking for. And I think this is hammering on exactly what you're talking about, maturity and integrity. Um, the proper discovery of where you're, where you're talking to, what their take on the CISO role really is. So hopefully you don't ever land in a checkbox twilight zone scenario in the first place, right? Um, do, do, do you have any specific questions, little things you look for, tells you look for, questions you ask as you're, as you're approaching that organization? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what they say about, you know, before you buy a car, used car, you should always talk to the previous owner. And yeah, <laughs> if if possible, you know, get in touch with the guy who just left or the lady who just left and, and, and find out, you know, from the horse's mouth, you know, why they're leaving. It might be just something simple like, you know, loads of cash. Um, but it might be something something deeper and you can get some hints from from, from that. So we, the great thing about this, the cybersecurity community is we all know each other and it's a, it's a great source of information and we can, we can find things out uh, more readily than perhaps some, you know, huge, uh, huge um, jobs where everybody in the world has that same job. So it's, um, it's, it's quite good to, um, you know, to find out from, from the, from the previous incumbent 
uh, what uh, what the score is. And if you can't do that, you know, you uh, you go through the interview process and and you know, hopefully you can ask the right questions to determine um, whether you will have the authority. So what's the reporting line? Um, what influence does that person have with the board? You know, what's the budget? That kind of kind of stuff to to work out whether you're going to get the authority. Because if you don't have the authority, you don't have the budget, then you can't act. Right. What are the security priorities? Right. And if all they talk about is a checkbox kind of a kind of approach, like oh well, we got to get SOC two for our customers. That's exactly. your security priority, right? Like yeah, that's a yeah. red flag to me too. Yeah, you'll ask a security questions and you get compliance answers. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, what are the security objectives are oh, to remain FCA and SEC yeah. compliant? Well, that's not the answer to the security question. That's the answer to a compliance question. And that's right. A kind of red, that's kind of red flag. Right. And, I like that. Yeah. I'm going to circle back when we talked about the accountability and authority um, and, and the racy chart and these kinds of things, too. I wrote a recent article where I talked about um, the CISO, the standard CISO lament of I don't have a seat at the table is one statement. But the other statement many CISOs make is, I exist as a business advisor. I don't own the risk. The business owns the risk. I'm here to consult and advise, da 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 da, da. And, and this ties back into that accountability and authority conversation. I don't think you can claim to be strictly an advisor slash consultant and also have the authority uh, to, to get things done. Nobody else at the top of the organization is allowed to get away with, oh, I don't actually own that. I just advise and consult, but I still want all the perks and benefits of having a seat at the table. And so part of my argument was, as CISOs, uh, like it or lump it, we have to take more ownership of risk. We have to take more ownership of the decisions around risk, and we have to go to the rest of the business and say, I'm the one most regarded as, as you know, understanding this risk. My recommendation is that we do X. X might be, you know, whatever, mitigate, transfer, accept, you know, whatever the argument is for that risk disposition. I believe we should go this direction. Now, I need y'all's vote and buy-in to get there, but I am, as the expert in the room, saying, my, you know, my position is clear, and I'm putting my word on the table, and I'm taking some ownership and some accountability for this risk decision. And I think if CISO step up and exhibit more ownership, it becomes a little bit easier to get that authority as well. In other words, it has to be taken, but it has to be taken honestly. This ties back into that integrity word you were using earlier for the organization. What are, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, you can't ride both horses. You, you cannot be an advisor consultant and be a, a manager. You have to, be, have to be one side of that fence. Um, just to give you an example, when I, when I first became the CISO for Reuters, um, I had a counterpart in physical security whose surname was confusingly exactly the same as mine. Um, and he, he called himself um, physical security advisor. And he had a very good, good route to the board. He had um, good exposure at senior level because he'd been there for a, a long, long time. And he used to show up and audit data centers for physical security. And he used to produce his advisor report and give it to the data center owner. And in almost every single case, they would do everything that was required on the report because he'd also file the report with audit. And he got the job done by being an advisor. And he never got fired. You know, he was never held directly responsible for anything. He was the advisor. The other side, of course, is where you call yourself a CISO security manager or whatever. And you do take on ownership of the risk. You take on ownership of the sign-off procedure. 
Um, and, and that's a big one. That is where a project will come to you at the end of the project and say, we require sign-off from this. And you don't want to get yourself in that situation. So taking ownership of risks that do not belong to you, they belong to somebody else in the business, for a system that you don't actually own or control, um, that's a dangerous situation. I, uh, I think I, I think you should avoid that at all costs. So yeah, if by all means, you know, call yourself a CISO or manager and and uh, take responsibility of the risk assessment process, but not of the actual approval for. Uh, for things and particularly risk acceptance so you know if there's residual risk at the end of a project you weren't involved in why should you take it on personal let's pause right there real quick for a word from our sponsor do you want to make cloud security risks a no-brainer and remove friction between your security and dev teams well daz takes the pain out of the cloud remediation process using automation and intelligence to discover reduce and fix security issues lightning fast daz prioritizes alerts shrinks backlog to actionable root causes, and improves mean time to remediation from weeks to hours. And best of all, keeps your developers focused on what they love doing most, coding. Visit daz.io slash demo and see for yourself. That's D-A-Z-Z dot I-O slash demo. Right. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. And I think, I think that's a natural instinct, but I think the physics of the role, it's almost like, the give and take, somebody has to make the first move. Somebody has to take the first step towards resolving this conflict between advisor and owner and, 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 and allowing, you know, resolving this conflict between lack of authority and, and these sorts of things. And uh, it feels to me like the CISO almost has to take on some risks they don't really own to, to take ownership of something that they don't really own. They have to be the ones to take that, we'll call it a career risk at that point. Somebody has to make the gamble to get the first foot in the door. Right. And, and to at least co-own that risk, to make it clear, you know, I can't affect the change for this, but I'm giving you my vote as to whether we should carry it, uh, mitigate it, uh, transfer it, whatever the disposition is. You're, you're, you're owning your recommendation as, as firmly and loudly as you can. So you're still kind of in that advisor camp, but now you're taking more ownership and you're basically approaching the person who does own that asset or that inventory or, you know, whatever it might be. And you're sort of saying, we're going to co-own this risk at this point. Like I'm the CISO saying, I, I'm, I'm okay with us carrying this risk. And now you co-own it, even though you don't influence how it's shaped or formed or addressed you're still exhibiting some ownership a little more than just that advisor consulting role. And it almost feels like if, if you don't take that first step and you don't take that first career risk, they're never going to reach out to you. You're reaching out to them. You're acting like one of them. You're taking more ownership, having more accountability, doing more authority. And now it's easier to wield the bat when you need to down the road, right? In other words, you're you're, you're acting like one of them now. You're, you're not the only one at the table saying, oh, just an advisor. Oh, but I want the authority. Oh, just an advisor. Oh, but I want the authority. You're, you're taking a little ownership, even if it's really not yours to take, right? It's a risk. It's a huge career risk. But I think in that, in that moment of tension, I don't know that they're going to reach out. I don't know that they're going to take a career risk to, to meet you in the middle. It almost feels like the CISO is stuck with that burden. Yeah. The, the other factor, of course, is that um, 
all of these uh, all of these changes come about through projects typically so you will find a, a project will start up to produce a new project or a, a product or a, a new service or whatever and project teams come and go and i've seen organizations that um, that use primarily contract uh, project managers and it's it's kind of safe for them to take on a risk because they know they're going to be working for another organization in, in you know, six months or whatever. And, and for you, as somebody wanting to, an owner for that risk in the business, you know you're assigning it to somebody who's, who's going to be gone in a month. So, you know, where's the sense in that? So, you know, if, if, you're, going to, if you're going to get somebody to take responsibility for a risk, you know, make it somebody more senior who's going to be there tomorrow and not be out, out the door otherwise the whole process is meaningless and the other thing I, i've noticed is that some organizations they they rely very heavily on what's called a waiver process yeah so you you, you nothing meets all the requirements so the, the, you'll, you'll have a you'll have a system you'll have a project whatever and you'll get to the end of it and it'll be oh you know we, we can't do the uh you know the uh, strong authentication that the two-factor or whatever it happens to be. We can't do this, we can't do that. And so you'll start creating these waivers or these um, these limited time you know, compliance deficiencies. And the idea is that somebody picks them up. But again, you know, you have to make sure that whoever's running with the, with the program long time is actually going to be responsible for clearing up these deficiencies as you go on. And I, I saw one organization, they had, they had 4,000 of these open waivers uh, yeah, right. Where the, all these projects have been moving forward, a very, very, very big organization, global. Um, but as, over a period of like five or ten years, they'd accumulated these four thousand waivers of, of statements of things that the the company could not do at that time or would not do at that time. And and that's a massive kind of exposure from an audit point of view of like you know why are all these open waivers, all these deficiencies, you know, being documented but not actually fixed. So there are some gotchas in there to do with this this risk stuff. It's, if you get people to accept a risk, you know, make sure they're there tomorrow, and make sure that any deficiencies that have been documented are in fact cleaned up. So, you know, we want the risk owner to be somebody who, who's going to be there for next year, two years, three years, uh, and not somebody who's out the door. Yeah, that's 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 a super important point. That's a super important point. So so this kind of this kind of pivots into this uh our our third topic was are we the baddies? Um you know, the mere existence of a core cybersecurity function, right? Uh it almost encourages everyone to assume that cyber is over there and not over here and I have nothing to do with it and there's a whole group. So we're back to that accountability and authority thing, but now we're talking about it from a perception framework. We're talking about the entire business uh, saying that, oh, well, you guys own it. Your, your mere existence indicates that I no longer have to worry about cybersecurity risk. That's on you guys. And so have we somehow done this to ourselves? Have we created a situation where by existing with the we own cybersecurity banner over our heads, we're actually doing harm to the business? Yeah, the, the, I've heard this openly declared that um, you know we don't need to do anything because we have a cybersecurity function cybersecurity head off so it's not my job because we have a function that does that and um, it's it's a big problem and it didn't it wasn't always that way i remember going into offices many years ago 
And there were posters on the wall that said, security is everybody's responsibility. I haven't seen those posters for years. And, and the mindset is that, you know, it's not my responsibility. We have a core function. They understand it. It's a bit of a kind of, uh, kind of secret art anyway. Um, so, you know, we will leave it to them to do. But if the problem is that security no longer scales. I, I read a research paper or an article a little while ago that said that uh, they'd done a survey of medium to large organizations, and they worked out that there were at least 84,000 pieces of IT from everything from mobile devices to PCs to laptops to routers to network components in the average organization, 84,000. Now, imagine you have a security team of up to 20. It still doesn't scale. You're not going to physically be able to, to get around and patch and fix and monitor and own all of those uh, those components. So, so there's a bigger, bigger issue here. There's a kind of elephant in the room that nobody talks about, is that no matter how big the security team is, you're not going to get around to fix everything. So we have to go back to this, you know, security is everybody's responsibility. And the idea of delegating down a lot of these tasks, training people where necessary, um, and getting them to, to own, you know, the, the task at the appropriate level. So, you know, rule one of management is delegate everything down to as low as you can get it and still make it reliable. And... Um, that's that's what we've got to do because it, it won't scale regardless of all of these other issues around authority and everything else you know if you've got uh, got too many components to to look after um your team your security function is not going to work, going to work like that so we have to do this um there's no question about it we have to sort of push the security management the security responsibility back down through the organization and stop uh, people thinking that it's just our problem Right, right. So, okay, so this, this ties into our fourth topic. You mentioned the posters. The security is everyone's responsibility. Back in the day, and I'm talking about, you know, U.S. DOD Rainbow Book era, right? Like way back in the day, those posters were everywhere. In any good military organization, those posters still are everywhere. Uh, you know, it's, it's up to each and every one of us, right? Like, like we're, we're protecting a nation. There are tons and tons and tons of other nations that are doing their best to infiltrate our organization, steal our secrets, learn our methods, you know, get the plans to our latest weaponry, whatever the, whatever the deal might be. And every soldier, sailor, airman, whoever they are, everyone knows they've got a responsibility. Everyone knows they have a role in this. And everyone knows they are accountable to some extent or another for the security of the organization. So, so it seems like there's, there's realms out there that haven't forgotten these basics, but some of these other basics are, you know, fundamental stuff that we seem to have, it's not just that the posters disappeared, right? Like we've lost, you know, a principle of least privilege, uh, separation of duties, uh, setting secure defaults, auditability, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of modern organizations in the corporate world, um, some of this stuff has fallen to the wayside. It's not just the posters that have fallen away. So I guess my question there is, you know, we've got all this technology, we've got all these vendors, we've got the, uh, what did you say? 84,000 things deployed. You know, if we've forgotten these fundamental basics, including the whole, we all have a role aspect of it. Are we ever going to win the game? Yeah, it's interesting. The, um, I worked on a program for uh, for a major financial institution 
where they were concerned about um, yeah, this organization was about was a couple of hundred years old, and, and um, I kind of figured that some of the employees had been there that long. Uh, <laughs> and during the course of their illustrious careers, moving sideways upwards and all, and, uh, through different different jobs, they had accumulated huge amounts of privileges on just about every system that had ever existed from day one. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term toxic combinations, where you've got too much privilege on too many things. And the program to unwind that, to unpick that, to try to reduce these privilege or remove them from from people who didn't need them that have built up over all this time it costs literally millions and it took about two and a half years and it still wasn't complete when i when i left it so th there's a thing here about an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure so if you can avoid your organization getting into that situation with proliferation of uh of rights on systems and this kind of stuff, it's it's going to be infinitely cheaper than if you if you let uh, excess privileges flow out across the organisation over a long period of time and you try and unpick it. You know, so somebody said last week, technology is like a cat. You know, we think we own it, but really it owns us. <laughs> <laughs> that is a brilliant metaphor. I love it. Like I love it. it. Yeah. So, but, but so it, yeah, those basics. I mean, I've worked in shops where the administrators just have access to absolutely everything they shouldn't and nobody questions it or thinks twice about it. Like that's one of the most common stories there is, right, is the admin with too much access. Uh, then there's the whole joiners, movers, levers. I used to be in engineering and now I'm in marketing, but I still have full access to all the source code. You know, like nobody changed that. Like that's another common refrain. Um, that, that lack of personal accountability, that lack of the poster that says, hey, you, you right there, yes, you, you know, you too have a role in security. Uh, and the auditability piece, like it almost seems like auditing has fallen to, we're, we're back to the very first topic we, we talked about on this show. It almost feels like a checkbox, um, you know, compliance, regulatory type, like when's the last time there was an actual honest to goodness internal security audit that was not driven by compliance? When's the last time you saw one of those in an organization? They're rare. They're rare. And kind of looping back to the old uh, Rainbow series and the trusted computer systems. Um, so this, this came from an era when we had some control over how the systems were actually uh, developed, created, run. These days, everything is shrink-wrapped. So we, we buy our systems from Microsoft or Linux or whoever. And, and we, we put them in with their default settings and everything else. And so the, the number of options we've got um, you know, to, to have uh, control over the, the principle of least privilege, separation of duties, you know, secure defaults, auditability, um, unexposed uh, APIs, that kind of thing, is, is limited because we are, we are using more and more off-the-shelf, out-of-the-box solutions. So the only options we've got are really to have good processes and good governance around this stuff. So we can't influence the design of the system itself like in the old rainbow days, but we can put processes around that avoid um, proliferating uh, too many privileges, that avoid um, breaching the principle of separation between uh, between roles in the business, and, and and kind of enforce this kind of governance where if a new system comes in, you cannot install it, you cannot uh, put it live unless you have designated the appropriate owner, delegate owner, uh, privacy owner, whatever. So you have to have these roles around it, 
uh, before it goes into the CMDB. Right, right. So, 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 but you know that doesn't happen in many organisations. Uh, people are able to buy things with their credit cards. You know, with the with the days of BOA, you know, bring your own device. You can go out and buy your own system and bring it in, and nobody knows it's there. So you need to get control of the inventory. You need to have a proper governance process for bringing new new technology into the business, making sure it's owned, making sure people are accountable, making sure people are trained. They have the right tools before the thing is allowed to go live. Yeah. And and in terms of people who want to get on the system, you have to have a governance process to put them on. And as you said with the JML, you know, to take them off again, to make sure that people don't accumulate all of these permissions on things they don't need. Right, right, right. And and even, you know, back to the system level secure defaults, right? Like, you know, US DOD still has this thing called, you know, gold disk, right? Where where to your point, you you're stuck with an off the shelf Microsoft, but you can still tweak it, uh, turn off services, set group policy objects, you know, edit the registry, make some changes, delete some things and do all that, and then save that image off. And that becomes the baseline image for everything you roll out going forward, right? Like there's still a few things we can do to layer on top of that, but it's all back to, like you said, adhering to those older principles. Um, you know, you, you can you can maintain a wee bit of control still. Uh, and, and a lot of folks don't. A lot of folks just blast out M365, blast out G Suite, and off they go to the races. And, and they start looking at security as issues arise, not... Not because there's a there's a series of principles and 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 precepts that are that are driving it, right? Um, yeah, and and unwinding the situation once you've created it, it's like taking candy away from babies. You know, they they scream. So, so you know, you've rolled out all these rights and privileges, and people think that they own them in some some way personally. And if you try and take them take them away, you end up with uh, a, a lot of very unhappy people. It's easier not to to proliferate too many privileges in the first right. place. Right. Backing into security is a lot harder than rolling security out. It, exactly. it really is culturally, right? Yeah, yeah. And and if you've got a good process in place that can't be easily circumvented and, or overcome, um, it, it makes sure that you, you do the right things and, uh, you know, avoid doing the wrong things. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a great fan of, of checklists. Um, and there's a reason that flying is the safest way to travel. You know, pilots use them constantly, and especially in emergencies. As do the air mechanics and everybody else involved in the process. Like, Which like is three three steps of checking to make sure the one thing was done. Exactly. Yeah, and we need these kind of like checklist, um, you know, actions as part of processes embedded within the business process itself to make sure that we, you know, we do the best we can around technology that we got off the shelf and we can't change that much. Um, so, you know, you can, you can do a lot with process. I think, uh, Schneier, didn't he say that, um, his original quote in 2000 was that, uh, security is a process, you know, not a product. Right. Right. So, That's so, exactly it. Yeah. So, so we need to get back to the, uh, the, the Schneier edict of, uh, process, um, to make up the deficiencies in, um, in product security. Fantastic. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. This has been some really good insight and some really good conversation. I think my listeners are going to really enjoy this one. It's been a great pleasure, Alan. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. 